How are we all? Oh, I sound really loud. Am I really loud? Am I really loud? Am I really loud? <laughs> um, maybe turn it down a little. All right. Okay. What are you laughing for? Don't laugh. This is serious. All right, we're going to be reading from God's Word this morning. Um, still continuing with the book of Romans. If you could please turn there with me. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. It is in the New Testament. It is right from the Gospels after the book of Acts. And before Corinthians. Okay, we're just going to be reading the first five verses. Therefore... Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for its simple and yet wonderful truths. That helps us know, dear Lord, where we stand with you now. It helps us understand that there is a way of peace and that there is a way of hope that there is a joy unspeakable, dear Father, that we can have in the knowledge of who you are. And I pray, dear Lord, that your spirit would be with us this morning, that it would touch each one of our hearts, that we would be able to rejoice also in hope in the glory of God. We thank you for this time. I pray, dear Lord, that you would be with me as I speak. In Jesus' name, amen. The, um, the first two chapters... Of the book of Romans, we were uh, we were grounded in what God was what God was teaching about mankind and particularly His relationship to us. It was the mountain of God's full case against mankind. He dug deeply into our nature and state and found a groundswell of pride and of arrogance, perversion of thought and shame, yet to be realised. At the peak of this mountain of evidence against man, Paul summarises the evidence at the midpoint in chapter 3. He says from verse 10, he says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre, with their tongues they have used deceit. <coughs> The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But from verse 21 in chapter 3, Paul begins to come down from that mountain peak of evidence and lays the groundwork of salvation through the same the saving blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, we're seen to enter into a ship of salvation, an ark, an ark, an ark of hope that God promises will lead us 
all the way home will lead us to what scripture teaches the celestial city. And at the first cha- first word of chapter 5, as we saw last time, we set sail. So, through our coming journey in the book of Romans, and as through this life, however, we're going to hit some storms. Tempests are going to throw us about, and the rocks are going to present themselves threatening to make shipwreck of our faith. But Christ said we will go to the other side. And our faith encourages us, just as Jesus encouraged his disciples. But it's hope. It's hope. It's hope that's going to anchor this, uh, this ship when the storms hit us. So the title of the message is Hope. We have four parts to it. The first is peace with God precedes hope. Peace with God precedes hope. The second is grace by Christ rejoices in hope. The third, tribulations in Christ encourage hope. And the fourth and last, hope is anchored by the love of God. So the first one, peace with God precedes hope. If you look at the text, peace seems to be required before hope. It seems to go before. We can look at it as the as the I don't know the, the housing of the anchor. Okay, so have a look at verse one and two. It says, "Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God." Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, we see that in in verse 1, is what precedes a rejoicing in hope in verse 2. Pretty simple, isn't it? It's not too difficult there, but what sort of peace is this talking about? Peace with God, what what sort of peace? Is this this the, the peace that passes all understanding, as spoken about in Philippians? Or is it that that that? tranquility of the soul you know that really calming peace that the lord talks about he speaks about it in in john chapter 14 where he says peace i leave with you my peace i give unto you not as the world giveth give i unto you therefore being justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ so i looked it up i looked up um peace not really hard got a dictionary you look up the word peace and see what definitions we come up with there's about 17 different definitions to the word peace when you look at the idioms as well as the definitions themselves. Um, just a couple of them I'm going to give you here. Non-warring conditions of a nation or group of nations. An agreement or treaty between warring or antagonistic groups, nations. A state of mutual harmony. Sensation of or freedom from any strife or dissension. And the last one, a state of tranquility or serenity. That's an idiom, may he rest in peace. Most of them relate to some form of enmity between parties. You notice that? Most of them revolve around some sort of a war, some sort of a battle. That, that's the sort of peace that, uh, that most of them talk about. So we live in a day and age where it seems to be like a... a constant battle around us there's 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 fightings and there's wars and there's things that are quite frightening we just came out of the bloodiest century in history 
108 million people died last century as a result of just a couple of world wars. The first one was known as the Great War. We're 100 years removed from that now. Uh, the second one, and that was, you know, incredibly, that was perceived as the war to end all wars, the Great War. Then we had the Second World War only a few years later, and we're about 70 years removed from that. But it's not true that we live in a time of peace today. We thought we left all the wars back then, and now we need to live in a time of peace. It's been said that over 3,400 years in the last 3,400 years, we have seen peace for a total of 268 years out of 3,400. It's not a big percentage, is it? Only roughly around about 8%. So what I wanted to know was, is there, is there some sort of relationship between the peace that the Bible speaks about, our peace with God, and this, and this warring sort of idea, this, this, the, these battles, and I thought, well, what are some characteristics? So I thought about some characteristics of war. Number one, it requires at least two parties at enmity w with one another. In other words, one is the enemy of the other. In Romans chapter 8, verse 7, it says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. In James chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, which we'll talk about next week or next time, says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So here the Bible describes us as enemies of God. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself that way, but that's how Scripture refers to mankind being separated from God as enemies of God. The second one is that one has to be angry with the other. Fair enough. You're not really going to kill someone you're not angry with. You're not really going to be defending yourself or defending a nation or anything like that unless you're concerned about the antagonism coming from the other party. So one has to be angry enough to bring about death. And Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Revelation 6.16 says, And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. From the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Hebrews 10 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Romans 6 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is there's definitely something there that um, is very risky, isn't it? There's a relationship there that's really risky. There's a... Well, a relationship that's at enmity, it seems. Third point was it's understood that in war only, in war, only one is expected to have the victory. Makes sense. You fight a war, you fight a battle, you're expecting to win. Generally, if there's two sides, one side is, is the one that would win. The Bible says in Psalm 110, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, 
when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Man, this is a pretty stark picture of this, this, this relationship between God and man. So this peace that we're talking about is, is, well, it's not a comforting peace before you enter into it, is it? Um, the fourth point that there has to be for conditions of peace. So there has to be conditions of peace. So for two warring parties to be able to come together or reconcile in one way or another, there has to be conditions of peace. There's only two ways that those conditions of peace can be put together. It is either imposed, okay, so a condition of peace is either imposed, uh, usually uh, unwillingly, okay, by the recipient, or there is a surrender. There is a surrender. It's either imposed or it's accepted. The, either, the enemy will either be forced into submission or will surrender. Example of a peace imposed. If you can, turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. What, we, what we're going to be seeing here is a literal battle. It's a literal fight that is going to be happening at the last days, in the very last days. It's almost a, it's a picture of... It almost looks like a picture of the Trinity having a conversation amongst themselves in Psalm chapter 2. You found your place. It says this, and we'll read it from, uh, we'll read it to to verse 12. It says from verse 1, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. What you're seeing here is, is, is a peace imposed. Okay? It's a peace that is unwillingly received. Okay? And there is a condition to that peace. There is a condition to that peace. That they not make the son angry, okay? lest there be wrath from God. But then we've got an example of peace that's surrendered. A peace that's surrendered. It's found in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. There's a tremendous difference between a peace that's surrendered and one that is imposed. When the Japanese surrendered, they they came to the Americans, and they were, I think they were on the ship Missouri, and it was a peace that was negotiated. And what an incredible blessing that was to the Japanese nation at that time, that they were able to rebuild again. Here we have peace of God Peace surrendered in Colossians, and it's chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. It's two verses there. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death 
to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. It seems, indeed, that the peace that Paul's referring to is this peace. Our battle-hardened hearts are warring against God, against the word of God. Our stubbornness against God, not knowing, not caring, not ashamed that we've sinned against him. In thought and in deed, we were unjust before him and continuing in rebellion. That's what we were. That's what we were. If you're born again, the text after that conjunction, therefore, in the text that we're looking at, is what describes your state now. And again it says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What we can now see is that being justified, our battle against God is over. And our peace reigns through our Lord Jesus Christ to rejoice in the hope that's spoken of in verse 2. Justification, justification. Just just a little addendum to this, okay, because I think a lot of you need to understand what it means to be justified. What, what does the Bible talk about being, being just? Every, every crime that's committed has a cost, okay? God has structured the laws of this universe and, and the law of our lives to help us understand that there is a cost to doing things that are wrong. It's a cost to society, it's a cost to the victim, and that cost always has to be paid. In, in an unjust society, that cost is often borne by the victim. Okay? The victim ends up paying the cost. Okay? God has created this world and the laws around this world that if we do good deeds, blessings come. Okay? There are things that we can be blessed with. Right? Now, that doesn't always stand because why? Oftentimes, there's someone doing bad deeds that also have a cost. So when a criminal is sent to prison, justice is done and the debt to society begins to be paid. Make sense so far? At the end of his time in jail, the debt to society is paid. He is seen as justified, he's free and he's no longer under the condemnation of the law. We're going to talk a little bit more about this next time, but a just judge sees to it that justice is done okay he sees to it that justice is done that the victim is pacified and that the law is fulfilled there's only two methods by which law can be justly fulfilled two 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 methods the payment of the debt by the one who incurred it okay so if a criminal has acted upon you or acted against you in one way or another or acted against you know we see plenty of white collar crimes going on um, the debt is either paid through them directly. The second is by a substitutionary atonement. Someone else making amends for the injury or wrong. Okay? Either way, either way, the individual that's committed the crime, once the debt is paid, he's free. He's free. And considered just. That's when we look at that text, therefore being justified by faith, you have a little bit of a clue of what that's referring to. Okay, so that text, peace with God, is what, is what precedes hope. The second point, graced by Christ rejoices in hope. We can consider grace in our allegorical ship as that which we rest in. It's that which we rest in. Our, our comfort is provided to us. Okay? 
Verse 1 and 2, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Grace by Christ rejoices in hope. We, we, we stand by grace. It's grace that saved you. It's grace that sustains you. It's grace that will preserve you until we're with the Lord. We need to be reminded of this uh, of this because we often don't have a really good understanding. Actually, there's very few people that have a really good understanding or grasp on, on grace. If you have your Bible said, please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Just to be reminded of this. As, as Christians, we generally struggle. We struggle with so many different things within our lives. You know, to know and understand just the concept of grace. Not to misappropriate it, not to use it wrong, but, but to use it for the glory of God and that would help us grow in the knowledge of Him. That is something that's so misunderstood. And it's not taken advantage of. Guys, just for a second, heads up. It's not taken advantage of. We need to take advantage of grace. And I don't mean that by using it licentiously. I mean that by when we wrestle and when we struggle, that we understand that it's the grace of God that sustains us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 17. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant, covenants, from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that's the, en the, the, the animosity between the two of us, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one New man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. So grace is not what we employ to justify our sin. Any that do so are licentious at the, the least and probably unsaved at worst. Grace is that in which we stand due to the nature remaining within us, that nature of propensity to sin, as we, as we still have as Christians. I don't know about you, I'm, I'm working on getting perfect, but you know, as far as the Lord's concerned, I know that I am. I know I sit in heavenly places with Him, but I know that, uh, that I do things that I'm sure would turn His head and, uh, and that I'm ashamed of. Grace is administered by God and received by us that are not worthy. Grace is what we bend our knees to receive. Grace is what propels our love for our Saviour when we are ashamed. Grace is what inspires us to live holy lives set apart to God, to do the work He has ordained for us from eternity past. Grace is why we share the Gospel. Grace is not a tool to sin, but a hand 
to hold on to. Grace should not be misappropriated, but it's easy to understand. It's not easy to understand either. In his attempt to define grace, R.A. Torrey wrote this. He said, um, it's a title that he says, is, is grace definable? He wrote this in the Fundamentals. He says, delightful as these definitions are, we are conscious that the half has not been told. Oh, the exceeding riches of his grace. Whereunto shall we liken the mercy of God? Or with what, shall we com- or with what comparisons shall we compare it? It defies definition and beggars description. This is hardly to be wondered at, for it is, for it is so divine. There are some things of earth to which no man, no human pen or brush has done justice. Storms, rainbows, cataracts, sunsets, icebergs, snowflakes, dewdrops, the wings that wanton among summer flowers. Because God made them, man fails to describe them. This is a doctrine that we find very, very difficult to understand or describe. And it is. Similar to the ideas of the Trinity, similar to so many... We, we find it so difficult to understand grace. But it's grace that saved you. It's not for anything that you've done. And, and, you know, thank goodness for that because, see, I can't do enough. I can't do enough to warrant God's favour. I can't do enough to make him please. Every part of me has some, um, some issue, you know. Um, every part of me, uh, though, though there's one part that desires to be sincere, there's another part that, 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 that aches with pride and with everything else that corrupts me, you know. So it has to be grace. It has to be His grace. We take advantage of it, drawing close to Him and loving Him. That's how we take advantage of that grace. Grace is saving power. It is preserving power. It's enabling power. And it's humiliating power. Grace is there to bring you humble before Him. I've said it before that a man has never stood taller than on his knees before a holy God. This is a man. This is a man. And a woman. <laughs> we, we, we need to humble ourselves before the Lord and we need to see the shame of our own sin. And then there's joy. Then there's hope. It's hope in Him, not in me. Not in me. Third point. Tribulations in Christ encourage hope. This is, this is a complicated one because we try and wonder how is it the trials and tribulations and the things that we go through, the difficulties that we go through, actually encourage hope. How do they do that? So, so again, back to our allegory, these are the storms that compass our ship on our journey. Okay, These are the storms. Verse 2 will start. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience, experience and experience, hope. When there is no ultimate hope, when before I ran according to the course of this world, what I thought to do what I wanted to do and chase what I thought was my own desires and what I thought would give me satisfaction and purpose and security and happiness, any trial I went through seemed pointless and nothing more than an obstacle to my goals. You know, I'd get angry about them, I'd go outside, I'd kick the cat, I'd wait for the next pointless tribulation. It's true, you know, you just, 
Heck yeah, I know. It's bruised cat. No, that cat's no longer with us, actually. But that's the kick to two. That's shh, shh. Every time I wanted to do what I wanted to do, there'd be tribulations thrown my way. And I'd get angry. I got angry to a point once that, and I know I've shared this with you before, that I yelled at God. I didn't believe in him. I yelled at him anyway, just in case he was there listening. You know? And I told him. I told him. Mate, did I tell him. I told him, you will not beat me. I still remember the words. Probably because I've repeated them so many times telling my testimony. You will not beat me. This is the one that created me. This is, this is the one that created the universe. This is the one that has enough power to create a global flood. You will not beat me. <laughs> I wonder how I sounded to him. <laughs> but, but these were my plans. These were my goals. These were my targets. This was what I thought I wanted. This is what was going to give me enjoyment of life and give me meaning in life. And that's what I wanted to go for. And when the tribulations came, mate, they, there was nothing to learn. You know, you know, it's really funny. When you see people going through these trials and tribulations that don't have hope, that they don't know that there is a purpose or a meaning or anything like that to life, those people get completely down and out, downtrodden by it, but continue to do the same thing again. You ever heard that expression, doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result, is what defines insanity. Okay? And it was really true. We, we do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Why? Because we're not learning patience. We're not learning experience, and we have no hope. We don't learn from our experiences. So we, we, we're troubled to go through the same thing over and over again. You know? It was Rene Descartes that actually said that man that learns nothing from history is doomed to repeat it. Okay? And it's very, very true. We don't learn from history because, generally speaking, the world has no hope. They've already rejected God, so they have no wisdom, no ability to learn. No ability to learn. The same things over and over again. Just as an aside, there's been over ah, 3,000 fiat currencies through history. A fiat currency is a, uh, is a money that's not worth anything. It's not based on anything. You know how our dollars used to be worth gold, right? Okay, there's been thousands of them through history. They went through 600 of them that just covered A and B, and every single one of them had failed, right? Every single one of them collapsed throughout history. In the last 40 years, the entire world has had a fiat currency. The entire world has had a fiat currency. Every single fiat currency collapsed through to inflation, through inflation, printing the money, printing the money. What are we doing today? We're printing money. We're printing money. So it's a matter of time before this fiat currency collapses and a new currency is going to be instituted. That's going to happen until we have the single world currency. We understand that. We've read the back of the book. But just to give you an idea, we don't learn from our experiences, our trials, our tribulations, all these difficulties. So let's take a look at the text again, sorry, for the digression. How can it be the tribulations in Christ encourage hope? Let's have a look at the text again. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing the tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope. First we'll note that 
there is that which can be known. The text says, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. It seems that there's a renewed understanding that occurs in the minds of, in the hearts of those that have peace with God. To know the difficulties and trials, tribulations work patience. When we go through difficulties, we continue to rejoice in hope because indeed the, the Bible says the love of God is shed abroad within our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. You see, when, when you're justified before God, when you understand that you now have peace with God and access to Christ by faith unto his grace, wherein you stand, you come to know that all things have a purpose. You know, when you know God and you, you come to know that you were created for a purpose, you know that there needs to be a purpose in what I'm going through. There needs to be a purpose in the trials that we have and the difficulties that we have. The Bible says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. I, th this was the verse that sustained me when I was going through so many difficulties. And we know, not, not think, not consider, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. You've got hope because you know that whatever occurs in your life, nothing can change your eternity. Everybody remember Job? You know Job? They go through some tough times. I reckon he went through some tough times. Yeah. He, he lost everything. He lost his servants. He lost his family, except for his wife. So I don't know if that was a good thing. <laughs> read about his wife. And, and he, but he didn't lose his friends. He, he went through a hard time. Those three friends were a nightmare, you know. And they were sent to encourage him, right? But what did he have? What can you tell in, the, in this text? It's in Job 19. You don't need to turn there. Let me read it for you so you can get the full grasp of what he says. He says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at that latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. I shall see God. He was the one that said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's the same one. And yet I don't know anyone that's gone through what Job's gone through. You know? I don't know anyone that's gone. And the Bible says he was a just man on the earth. He was a righteous man. He was the wealthiest of all the men in the east. So God had so blessed him abundantly. People often think that, you know, the book of Job's is about, you know, why do the righteous suffer? Well, if that's true, and the book of Job never answers the question... It never answers the question. God simply puts Job back into his place. And he says, who art thou that replies against God? He says, gird up thy loins like a man. I will demand of thee and answer thou me. You tell me. Who's the one that created the universe? Who's the one that created this world? Who's the one that gave you breath and life? Doesn't answer the question. But Job submits. He doesn't understand why he's suffering. But he knows it's for a purpose. Guys, we don't know. Why we go through the things that we go through. We don't know why family members go through what they go through. I remember when Maria was having um, Saskia and then, and, and, you know, the first time you go through a, a, your wife going through labour and you're going through it in a very different way, you know, you're miserable. I mean, I remember walking up and down the beach in Williamstown and, and, and asking, why, why does she have to go through this? You know, why can't I go through this? Curse that thing, that thought. 
terrible thought that I would say. Why don't I go through this? But I was, you know, it was, it was terrible to see her suffering so much at that time. You know, thankfully Saskia came out. That was really good. So it was a blessing. <laughs> when you understand, there's a purpose. There's a purpose, and we have that purpose. We know that there's a purpose because we know that we were created on purpose. You know, all the stuff that I went through in my life, and I'm sure many things that you guys have gone through in your life, was what brought you to God. And though all that stuff was bad, the very fact that it brought you to God, are you upset about it? Are you disappointed? I'm not. Nowhere near it. If I didn't go through what I went through, maybe I wouldn't know the Lord. And that is the best part of my life, is the Lord knowing Him. And having the peace that passes all understanding. So not even death can affect your, you negatively. In fact, it becomes the very transition to witnessing the glory of God. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, please, chapter 15. If you're in Romans, just turn right. It's the very next book, chapter 15. All the way to verse 54, please. Verse 54. Paul says this, speaking of his own body, speaking, he's, he refers to his own body as this corruptible. Okay? And he says this, he says, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? How incredible is that? Our very death is swallowed up in victory. The very worst thing that we think can happen to us actually becomes that which is victory. That which is great. That which is good. Not that I wish to die. But at the same time, I long to be with my Lord. You know, like Paul, you know, we, we, we long to be with him. You know. And that's his timing. So we have hope. Now I can begin to see how the tribulation in Christ encourages hope. So when nothing can affect your course negatively and all has its purpose, your patience is piqued. And you come to know that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. So all the experience I thought to be for nothing when I had no peace with God now begins to turn me to Christ in hope. Terrible experiences we know will end if you're in Christ. That's exciting. Terrible experience we know will end if you're in Christ. The great sadness is for those who suffer but who know no hope. Those whose end remain without hope unless interceded by you. Paul, encouraging the brethren with these words, he says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. So share that hope, will you? That they might have hope. In 1 Peter 3 it says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. 
When you suffer tribulation, I know that it's not a joy. Today I go through those trials and I know that the Lord's behind them some way, somehow, and it's worth a laugh. You've got to laugh, otherwise you're going to cry, I'll tell you. You've got to laugh. So tribulations in Christ encourage hope. They are not to shipwreck your faith. The last point, hope is anchored by the love of God. The last verse, the fifth verse, and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Hope is anchored by the love of God and hope maketh not ashamed. Um, shame, the, the whole idea, the, the whole idea of being ashamed, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a mental state of humiliation. I'm looking at that, hope maketh not ashamed. What does that mean? Hope maketh not ashamed. Ashamed is the feeling of disgrace. Um, shame is that that experience that, uh, well, that that really everybody should be going through because of our own nature and and sin. It's not seen as a bad thing in in God's eyes. When it comes to being ashamed, He's expecting us to be ashamed of our sin. He's expecting us to be ashamed of our rebellion against Him. You know, he's expecting that. Okay, he says in Jeremiah chapter 6, 15, he says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. This, this is something God is expecting us. It's part of repentance, to have shame, to be ashamed. It's part of being repentant before a holy God. If he doesn't see that, what does he see? Prideful, ignorant arrogance is what he sees. Goes on in their lives. Job 19, he says to his friends, he says, Ten times ye have reproached me. Ye are not ashamed that ye make yourselves strange to me? So we can also experience shame on behalf of other people. You know that? We can experience shame on behalf of other people. There's people that we love and that we that we endear. If you turn your Bibles to Ezra, uh, Ezra's in the Old Testament there. Actually, or you, could, or you can just listen on. You can listen on if you like. 70 years of captivity. So they were, they were in captivity for 70 years, Israel. They had disobeyed God. They had rejected him in many ways and they committed abominations against him. And they were given 70 years of captivity as punishment for their own sin. And the Lord had finally opened the door whether they can go back now. They can go back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, back to rebuilding the city, back to rebuilding the temple and the walls and the streets, back to the life that they had before in faith, before a holy God. And they went back. They went back in droves. Not all of them went back, but the majority of them, it seems, went back. And they began to build the city again. And in Ezra chapter 9... There And just before Ezra chapter 9, there is something that occurs. Guess what they've done? They've gone back to committing the same abominations that they did, which led them into captivity. And Ezra, Ezra was, well, earlier he says he sat astonished. I remember, remember when I read that, one of the first times that I read it, and, it, and I really got a grip of what actually happened. I was dumbfounded. Absolutely dumbfounded that people can be so stupid. And that's exactly what they were. That's exactly what we can be. And he says in verses 6 and 7, he says, Oh my God, 
I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespasses grown up into the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to spoil, and to a spoil, and to confusion of face as it is this day. Each one of us need to be ashamed of how we live and how we've behaved, particularly since becoming associated with Christ, and most particularly when we reject him. Most particularly when we reject him. I know, and I'm sure, just based on statistics, that there are those that are here that have heard the gospel time and time and time again and continue to reject the truth of God. It's a shame. So we see the word is not altered in meaning and hope maketh not ashamed. The shame pictured here is one where we have believed in error. Every one of us has, at one point or another, believed something to be wrong. Every person here has been deceived, even willingly so. I've been deceived. You've you've all been deceived in one way or another. We've cast our anchor to have it rest on some foundation. We had our hope in our own ideas, our experiences, our dreams, our philosophy, only to find it not hold when challenged by a storm. You know, that's when you want to really recognise that what you are, whatever it is that you're holding on to is wrong. If, if, if your anchor's been cast and the ground that it's actually bedded in is not actually there, and if the anchor just continues to slip, it won't hold you during the storms of life. It won't hold you during the difficult times. In this, we become ashamed. And the experience of shame isn't a pleasant one, though. It's humiliating. And that's why a lot of people avoid it. That's why we like to avoid it. That's why we don't want to bow our heads before God. That's when communion time happens and and comes across, you put your head down, you close your eyes and you're vaguely asleep rather than confess yourself before the Lord. You know, we don't like to experience the inner depth, the depravity that we can often have. It's this anticipated experience that we avoid through pride. Few of us admit when we are wrong about something, about someone, about ourselves. We've done that, haven't we? We've spoken about someone, we've judged someone in our hearts. We should be ashamed. We don't know the situation. You know, It's amazing how many people I've met that have arguments in their own heads with regard to why that person didn't answer their phone, why they didn't respond to an SMS. Oh, I sent them an SMS, I sent them a text message, why didn't they respond? I've given them a day. You know, it's been, it's, been, it's been at least a day and they haven't responded to me. They must hate me. That's what they do. They hate me. They always do that. They, they, they just don't like me. So before they even get to say hello on the phone, it's already a whole scenario is played out within their minds. Should be ashamed. Should be ashamed. Same thing, someone walks into church and they don't look at you right. Well, you don't know what they've gone through. You don't know what's happened to them the night before. But because they didn't look at me right, mm, they're ignoring me. Hmm. wonder why. Hmm. Oh, it's so true. I mean, you laugh because you know it's true. We need to check ourselves. We need to truly check ourselves. And we need to be ashamed of how we think. All right? And give ourselves to the Lord. Hope maketh not ashamed. Why does it make it not ashamed? Because it's anchored by the love of God. That's why. 
Romans 5, 6 and 10. Please, you're in Romans 5. You're up to verse 5. Read forward to verses 6 to 10. Have a look at this text. It's incredible. He says this, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Guys, if it's true that God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If it's true that if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How can it not be true that we shall be saved by his life? Can you see the logical conclusion of this? Can you see that this text implicitly states that a person that is saved by the blood of Christ, when we were yet enemies, shall be preserved unto life everlasting? You know, the fallacy of people that think that salvation is somehow temporary. You can't do that based on this text. You simply can't do that. Because our hope is anchored by the love of God. It's really simple. Back to verses 8 and 10. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Have a look at the next three words. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What an encouragement that is. Our salvation is permanent. It is not something that ebbs and wanes based on our emotions, our feelings, whether we think we're saved, whether we don't think we're saved. It is based on the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and your faith believing in him. It's that simple. That's when you're born again. If as enemies Christ died for us, substituted himself to atone for our crimes, set us free and compelled us to believe the gospel, and if we have then believed unto righteousness and are now justified by his blood, will he now make us ashamed by the same law that we're freed from? We're not ashamed. We don't need to be ashamed. We don't need to be ever ashamed because it's anchored by the love of God. You know? I always get to this particular point with, with the book of Hebrews. And we're just about finished. And I want you to read with me, please. If you can turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews, chapter 11. Verse 16, it's known as the faith chapter. It's known as a chapter that should really give us encouragement. It's such a beautiful portion of the Bible. I have to say that Hebrews is one of my favourite books in the Bible and how it speaks. It's just wonderful. Verse 16, from verse 16, and we will read uh, to verse 40. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly 
Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both his both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. By faith Moses, when he was born, he was hid three months of his parents because they saw that he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as by dry land, which the Egyptians are saying to do, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, after they were compassed about seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not, when she had received the spies with peace. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to, fl to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They watched, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in des deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Anchors are um, anchors are small when compared to the size of the ship. Anchors are small. Uh, they're carried and they're dropped only when they're needed. They have no part to play in the journey. They don't perform as a compass. Uh, there's no wind that would catch in it like a sail. They can't be used to propel the ship through water, uh, nor can they be used to help it steer or even set its course. They're used to connect the vessel to the bed of a body of water to prevent it drifting in currents and winds. And they are employed temporarily. Hope is this anchor. 
We employ it when we go through tribulation. It begets patience and experience and comes full circle to enhance our hope. The anchor actually grows larger and stronger. The love of God is the foundation on which our hope is deployed. This is where we are held fast. There are times the storms are going to threaten you. You can't set sail at that time. You can't set sail at that time. You can't, vo- you can't enjoy the view at that time or the journey. Even the sight of the destination is marred. It's at that time when you need to cast your anchor, know the love of Christ and hold fast till it passes. But when it passes, you must set sail again. You need to weigh the anchor and continue the journey in hope and joy. There's much to see and experience and many people to pick up along the way who until you came had no hope. Father, we thank you for the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope of salvation. We thank you for the destiny, dear Lord, that you have wrought for each one of us that have trusted in you. And we mourn, dear Lord, we mourn bitterly for those that reject you and those that are yet to come to you and those that are yet to hear of the wonderful news of salvation. For we know that many, dear Lord, once they hear of the hope that is within us, will grasp and will come and will run and will desire in every way to climb aboard that ark. And I pray, dear Lord, that we would encourage many and that we would dissuade none. Father, I pray for your work within our lives. I pray for your work within the lives of the congregation that hear these words, the people that are here, dear Father, that know not the love of Christ, that are grounded in a false hope. I pray, dear Lord, for them, and I pray that your spirit would move them, guide them, lead them, and draw them to the wonderful love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, be with us this evening, this day. Be with us in fellowship this afternoon. I pray, dear Lord, that if the questions come, those that are ready will answer for the hope that is within them. In Jesus' name, we thank you again. Amen.